Please open your Bibles with me this morning to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew 20. When I was a missionary raising support to go to Brazil, it was back in the dark ages, right? We didn't have a really didn't have email, um, didn't use email back then. This was 30 plus years ago. Um, email, I think, was around, but it wasn't used much. And uh, obviously there weren't cell phones and texting and websites. And I mean, things have changed a lot in 30 years. So what we had to do is we had to call up pastors on the phone. And we had to Say, hi, my name's Doug Payne. I'm a missionary with GFA going to Brazil and da 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 da. And we'd like to come to your church and present our ministry. And, and um, so I called, I don't know, I could say thousands, but I'll say at least a thousand pastors over the course of um, three years of deputation. And um, I called this one pastor once. And, you know, we got this list of pastors from the from our mission board, and it usually had a couple of different phone numbers there. Um, one of them was usually the church, and the other one may have been his home. But anyways, I called this number of this pastor, and I, I knew the pastor. I knew him from the past. And I called him up, and he, he answered, and I said, Hey, Pastor so-and-so, and this is Doug Payne. And, and he immediately said to me, Why are you calling me at my home? And I'm like, First of all, I wasn't sure which number was which. I didn't say that. He said, why are you calling me at my home? You want to come to our church to present your ministry. You, you need to call the church. You need to talk to the missions committee. You need to, you know, go through all that, you know, if you want to come to our church. I said, oh, sorry to bother you. <laughs> you know, and that was the end of the conversation. I never did call the church office. I said, well, I think I'll skip this one. So now I'm a pastor, right? And I get calls sometimes on the church phone, um, and I, I got a call from an evangelist, and, and he said, I want you to, you need to schedule me at your church, and basically, he's, he's given me his sales pitch of why I need to schedule him at the church, and, and basically, his, his pitch was, you know, I'm, I'm God's gift to the church, and you need to schedule me. Well, I didn't schedule him. Well, another time, I was talking to someone who used to attend this church, and, and um, I asked him, would you be willing to bring a devotional for our Christmas program? You know, we're having a Christmas, well, a Christmas party. Would you be willing to bring a devotional? And, and he declined. He, he, no, he said, no, I don't really want to do that. And then he proceeded to tell me, but if you ever need me to preach on Sunday morning, I'll be available. No, he never preached on Sunday morning. Um, why do I tell you all of this? Well, it's because we're dealing with church leadership. We're dealing with church leadership. We've been dealing with elders and deacons. And, and these are all examples of men who obviously come across as arrogant, full of pride, 
thinking perhaps more highly of themselves than they should. And, you know, maybe, maybe I just caught, well, the first two, the other one, I knew more of the situation, but the, the, the pastor and the evangelist, maybe I just caught them on a bad day. I don't know. But anyway, the way they portrayed themselves was, was not anything like you would see in the scriptures for leadership. We've spent several weeks looking at the qualifications and duties of elders and deacons in the local church. And this morning, I, I want us to look at what, what I believe is the most important character quality of any leader in a church. In the context of the series on biblical church leadership, the application is definitely to elders and to deacons. In fact, this quality has come up several times in our study so far. But we also need to realize that this character quality is important for any Christian who is in any kind, who is in any kind of leadership position in the church. It's not only for elders and deacons, but, but also for, for any man or any woman who is in a leadership role in the church. You see, every leader in the local church must be a servant leader. A servant leader. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus is teaching his disciples what true leadership looks like. And leaders, and you know this, they're, they're often referred to as great men or great women. And this is exactly how Jesus refers to leaders in his kingdom. He, he uses these designations, great and first and in this passage, what he does is he compares leaders in the kingdom of men with leaders in his kingdom. First, he explains what does not constitute great leadership in his kingdom. Then he explains and exemplifies what great leadership is like in his kingdom. So in Matthew chapter 20, let's read this passage beginning in verse 20. Matthew 20, 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You're familiar with this passage, I'm, I'm confident. And you're familiar with this request that is made, but let's go through this passage and, and note 
what Jesus says here regarding being a servant and what leadership looks like in his kingdom. And the first thing he, he says here is, we see this in verses 20 through 22, is that the greatness in Christ's kingdom is not guaranteed through one's position in life. You know, a person awful often concludes that he has privileges based upon his position. And he often seeks to take advantage of his position for spiritual advancement. This happens in, in the church all the time. And this seems to have been the case here with James and John. Their mother, Salome, was probably the sister of Mary, Jesus' mother. And they were most likely first cousins of Jesus. And so their mother approaches Jesus, and she approaches him as one would approach a king. She comes and she bows down before him, and she, she is awaiting the honor to be able to speak with him. And King Jesus grants her a hearing. What is it that you want? And she has a very bold request, right? She, she wants that the two highest places of honor in Jesus' kingdom, the two highest places of honor under any ruler to sit at his right hand and his left hand, that that would be granted to her two sons, James and John. Well, both humanly and in the eternal plan of God, this is not a, a possibility. Jesus responds, he says, to sit at my right hand and at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. You see, James and John had faith, and so did their mother, that Jesus would be king. But they had some serious misunderstanding about his kingdom. Not only about the timing and nature of his kingdom, but also how one could become great in his kingdom. But one's earthly position in life is irrelevant in the kingdom of God. Just because they're Jesus' first cousins doesn't mean that they're going to have this great position in his kingdom. Jesus is addressing here who would be first. And it's interesting in the context of that, that Matthew arranges the scripture here, right? Is that, that he has just recorded a couple of incidents in which Jesus has discussed this very concept of being first. If you look back and um, he, he says in chapter 19, he, he's dealing here with the rich young ruler. Remember that story, right? He's dealing with the rich young ruler. And this rich young ruler incident illustrates the same thing, that position in this life is irrelevant to position in the kingdom of Christ. Remember, he comes and he, he says, oh, I've kept these commandments since my youth. And Jesus says, well, go sell all that you have and, and come follow me. And, and the disciples are marvel, marvel at this and they said, well, who then can? Who then can be a part of your kingdom? And you remember what he said in chapter 19 and verse 30? He says, many who are first will be last and the last first. Just because this, this man had this 
everything in this world. I mean, he's rich, he's young, he's a ruler, he, he's righteous in his own eyes. Um, just because he had all this position, there was no guarantee that, that he would be a part of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Christ. No, because entrance is only through the door, right? And Jesus is the door. It doesn't matter who somebody is. It doesn't matter of their, their nationality. It doesn't matter if they're brought up in a Christian home, if they have a Christian education. It doesn't matter if, they, if they're a teacher, a deacon, or an elder, or an evangelist, or a pastor, or a missionary. It doesn't matter who someone is. Nobody is guaranteed by their position in life to be a part of the kingdom of heaven, a part of the kingdom of Christ. It's only those who turn from their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ. It's only those who are born again in, in a part of Christ's kingdom. And the same thing is true of the greatness of one's position in that kingdom. So it's, it's not one's position that gives him opportunity or, or puts him in a certain place of importance in serving Christ. <clears throat> no, one's position in this life is irre irrelevant in the kingdom of Christ. But we also see here as we continue in, in Matthew 20 that greatness in Christ's kingdom is not gained through one's performance in life. Jesus asked them a question. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Of course, the, his mother approached Jesus, right? But Jesus, he speaks to James and John. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said, we are able. And he said to them, you will drink my cup. But you, you see, everyone has responsibilities in this life to be fulfilled. The, James and John, they want these two highest places of honor in Christ's kingdom. The right hand and the left hand of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. They have a calling in life. They, they're, they're apostles. They're apostles. They, 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 they have a, a, a calling to fulfill in life. And, and he asked them about this. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Well, what's he talking about? <clears throat> Well, if you go back to the Old Testament and you study this out, you'll see that the cup was usually used to refer to, to suffering. In, in many cases, it was referring to suffering the wrath of God. And we know that Jesus would drink the cup of suffering as God's wrath was poured out upon him in the crucifixion. He would say... From the cross in Matthew 26, 39. Or, I'm sorry, before he went to the cross in the garden, he would say, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He, he was going to endure the suffering of the cross. He was going to take on himself the, the sins of the world. He was going to have poured out upon him the wrath of of his father, God. 
That was the cup that he was going to drink. And he's asking James and John, can you drink of this cup that I'm going to drink of? And they said, yes. Did they? They did. Jesus acknowledged, you will drink of this cup. What happened to James? Well, it wasn't that many years later. He was killed by the sword of Herod. He was martyred. He suffered and shed his own blood for his faith in Christ. What about John? Well, we don't know exactly how John died, but we know when he was a very old man, he was suffering as a prisoner on the island of Patmos. He, he, was, he was drinking of that cup of suffering for following Christ. But Jesus wants them to understand that it's not even their accomplishment of drinking the cup of suffering for him that would gain them greatness in his kingdom. Just because they would accomplish great feats for him, even martyrdom, that would not gain them a status of greatness in Christ's kingdom. And we have to understand this. The magnitude and the fulfillment of one's responsibilities in life does not determine greatness in the kingdom of Christ. You know, we just saw this again right here, right here in Matthew's writings in, in this same chapter, in chapter 20. We have another incident that Matthew recorded. And he gives this parable of the, of the laborers in the vineyard. Remember that one? Where some of them went out at the beginning of the day. Some went out a little later and a little later and a little later. And some went out just and only spent an hour. And they all worked in the, in the vineyard. And they came back and how much did they get paid? All the same. All the same. And what did Jesus say there? He said, the last will be first and the first last. And so one's position in Christ's kingdom, one's, one's consideration of being great or being first, the most important, it isn't based upon what one does. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus is speaking in verses 7 through 10. He says, will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. You see, simple performance of one's duties does not gain the stature of greatness in Christ's kingdom. These two parables about servants illustrate this truth. Working in the fields all day or serving the master's supper before feeding oneself is simply doing one's duty. It's doing what is expected. And this makes one, at best, Jesus says, an unworthy servant. 
doing one's duty, then comparing oneself to others who have done less. And complaining about it, it gains no commendation to to greatness in Jesus' kingdom. Nobody can say, look what I've done. Look what I've done. Just look at my life. Look at how I've served. Look Look at how I've served in ministry. Look how faithful I've been to church services or how I've given my tithes and my offerings to the Lord's work. I know a lot of people who are doing a lot less than me. Surely I'm greater than them in Christ's kingdom. Surely I'm up here. Surely I deserve to be way up there in Christ's eternal kingdom as well. I'm going to be way above others because you just look at everything I've done. Well, the question for, for a person, for all of us, but especially a person like that, is why do you do the things you do? Why do you do the things you do? What's your motivation? If you're doing these things for your own profit, if you're doing these things so others will think highly of you, if you're doing these things for something you can gain from it, then as Jesus told the Pharisees when he was renouncing the Pharisees, in giving examples there in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you, you already have your reward. You already have your reward. If you're simply performing your duty and your attitude is, well, I, I have to do this, or if you're ungrateful and, and complaining, but you're doing your duty, you're at best a, a servant who is unworthy of honor or reward. Maybe you are one of God's servants, but you're far from being great in Jesus' kingdom. You see, greatness in Christ's kingdom is not guaranteed through one's position in life, nor is it gained through one's performance in life. Well, back to the account here in Matthew 20. I mean, the other ten, they heard it, right? They, they heard what these two men, these two brothers wanted And they were indignant. Do you think they might have been a little bit hypocritical? I mean, because they had recently been arguing among themselves, all 12 of them, who was the greatest. In Mark 9, you can read that. Maybe they were just upset because James and John got the courage to ask before they did. But in actuality, they were all promoting themselves and seeking what was in it for them. And so Jesus gathers all the 12 together and he addresses them. He says, look, I want you to understand what true leadership is like in my kingdom. And and he, he says really greatness in Christ's kingdom is given to those who sacrificially serve others in life and we see this in verses 24 through 28 jesus makes a comparison between the gentile leaders those in the world and those who are leaders in his kingdom and he speaks of the abuse of power among the leaders of the world worldly leaders lord it over they domineer those who are under their authority they use their authority for their own advantage And Jesus tells them that's not the way in his kingdom. Now, we don't really need 
illustration to, to understand what he's saying. We, we see it every day of our lives, and it's, even in our own country, it's gotten worse and worse. Those who are supposed to be leaders in our government, most of them, I'm sure there are some exceptions, but most of them, they're in it for themselves. They're lining their pockets with money. They're, they're, they're working with corporations and groups that, that will give them money to pass laws that, that these groups want passed. And, I mean, that's not a secret, right? You see it, you see it throughout our culture. People use their authority for their own advantage. But Jesus explains what leadership looks like in his kingdom. He explains that the great leaders are servant leaders. Look what he says here. He says in verse 26, It shall not be so among you. It's not going to be like the Gentiles. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And he teaches them that whoever desires to be great, and the idea there is important in his kingdom, must be a servant of others. What's that word servant? You want to guess? Diakonos, right? Deacon, the one we looked at the last two weeks. He says he must be a servant of others. He must be a, a diakonos, one who focuses on serving others instead of pleasing himself. But then Jesus goes further. He says, whoever would be first, not only great, but highest among the great. Whoever would be first among you must be slave. Doulos. Doulos. One who gives up all of his rights and devotes himself wholly to doing the will of another. He must be the slave of all. So, so first is higher than great, right? And slave, doulos, is lower than servant, diakonos. Because the slave's whole life in service for which he can, it's a service for which he can claim no credit, no reward. And Jesus is saying that those who seek to lead in his kingdom must not seek personal success, but rather must seek the opportunity of doing lowly service. The way to greatness in Christ's kingdom is not taking advantage of one's position in life. It's not a matter of simply performing one's duties in life. It's living one's life with an attitude and a manner of life of being a servant of all. So what does this servant leadership really consists of? Well, we see several things here. I want to um, just give you the outline that um, this, from this book it, titled Being Leaders. It's by Aubrey Melfers. And, and he draws from this passage and, and one other four characteristics of servant leadership. And I'll just share them with you briefly. Um, the, the first is humility. In his words, he says, the manner of Christian leadership is humility, not egoism, not self-promotion. And in Matthew 20 here, verses 25 and 26, you know, 
Jesus makes this comparison. He, he calls them, the disciples, to him. And he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be, among, be so among you, but whoever will be great among you must be your servant. And <coughs> really, for leadership, really in any kind of leadership, there's, this, there's always this temptation for leaders to, to allow their leadership to become an ego thing. To, to subtly, and, and sometimes not so subtly, to dominate over other people. And Jesus said, no. You know, my, a true servant is going to be humble. A true servant is going to practice humility. They're going to keep that guard up. They're, they're not going to allow their position as a leader to bring them to lord it over people. The second thing he mentions here is, is service itself. The essence of Christian le- leadership is giving, not receiving. Um, here it's James and John, right? With their mother. What do they want? They want to receive. They, 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 want, they want to be able to have those two highest positions in Christ's kingdom, under Christ. Um, but Jesus teaches here that, no, the essence of Christian leadership is giving. It, it, it's serving. It's service. Um, Let me read a quote here from from Melfors. He says, The distinctive thing about the concept of the doulos is the subordinate, obligatory, and responsible nature of his service in exclusive relation to his Lord. It involved giving without expecting anything in return. Jesus' point is that our service, diakonos, on the one hand, is voluntary. On the other hand, in light of all that Jesus had done for them, they were at the same time under obligation to serve doulos, him, without expectations of their own. So Jesus uses the two concepts to carefully weave together the ideas of obligation and willingness in giving one's life to serve as a leader. We're obligated to serve him, but at the same time, we must be willing to serve him. In short, we willingly obligate ourselves to serve. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's combining these two words, <coughs> diakonos and doulos. He's talking about a, a person willingly obligating himself to serve. Notice what he says in verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus uses himself as an example, right? Jesus came voluntarily, humbling himself. Paul tells it, he lays it out there in Philippians 2, right? He came with a purpose. And Jesus states it here in verse 28, both positively and negatively. He came not to be served. He didn't come looking for others to wait on him. He didn't expect others to to be ministering to him. Although some did, right? There were those who ministered to Jesus. Um, That wasn't his purpose. That's not why he came to earth. 
No, it was quite the contrary. He, he came to serve others. In fact, the greatest service that he rendered was accomplishing the purpose set forth in, in, in verse 45, where he says, or verse 28, I'm sorry, where he says to give himself as a ransom for many. He, he gave his life as a ransom, the, the necessary payment to effect the release of captives from sin. And of course, we, we know these verses, right? In 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And he says in Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. I mean, this is the ultimate service. This, this is the greatest level of a servant that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he himself, the God of glory, he himself who, who possessed all of the attributes of God, all the prerogatives of God, he, he set it aside and he came to this earth. He was born as a man. He was born as a servant. And he, and he gave his all, his, his very life. Not only as he lived did he serve others, but ultimately in his death he served others by the sacrifice of himself to pay the penalty for the sins of human beings. You see, Jesus lived a life that was characterized by a servant attitude and by servant activities. Jesus taught and lived out the truth that greatness in his kingdom is granted by God to those who are sold out to serving others and are not caught up in pursuing their own desires, their own power, their own authority, their own prestige. The kind of service Jesus calls for is the sacrificial giving of one's life. And notice where this service is, and this is the third point by, by Malfers. It's a focus on others. See, the recipients of Christian leadership are others, not self. Here in Matthew 20, the, the mother of, of the sons of Zebedee come and, and she's seeking things for herself. It's her sons. She, she's not going there to see if Peter and Andrew can have these places. She's not concerned about either one of the Thomases. No, she, she's looking for James and John, her sons. And, and I mean, ultimately, it's them asking the question, right? That they're, they're thinking of themselves. They're focused on themselves. And, and really, again, I mean, that's, that's a temptation that, that people face. You want, you want to be in, in some form of leadership in the church? Well, well, what's in it for me? What do I gain from this? Um, it's interesting here. What, 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 if, what if the scripture just said, you need to serve God? Say amen, right? I need to serve God. He's worthy. I need to serve Jesus. I need to serve him. He's the Lord of lords. He's the king of kings. He's the God of gods. He's perfect. He's glorious. And, and I need to serve him. But, but is that what Jesus says here? 
Look what he says in verse 26. Whoever would be great among you must be whose servant? Your servant. You see, Jesus isn't just calling his disciples to be servants in a general sense. He's not even just calling them to say, oh, you got to serve God. No, he's exhorting them specifically to be servants of each other. Oh, well, that's, that's different. We're going to serve each other. That's how we serve God, right? We, we, we're called to serve each other. It's much more difficult um, to serve God. That, yes, that's expected. That's, you know, we say, yes, we should do that. We can do that. But to serve others, even, even our competitors, they all, wanted to be, they all wanted to be at the right and left hand, right? In their minds at this time, of course, they, the Spirit came and, and illuminated their minds and, and they were able to understand you know, truth after Jesus' ascension. But at this point, they, they were competing with one another. Who was going to be the greatest? This conversation came up Often, apparently. But Jesus tells them, look, you are to be so busy serving others that, that you don't even pay attention to your own ambitions. That's the message here. Instead of focusing on being over people, you're to place yourself willingly under them. That's what a servant is. And Jesus says, when you do that, you'll become great. When you do that, you'll become great. So the, the image of the servant here expresses humility and willing withdrawal from, from the competition for status and power. There, there should be no competition in any local church for status and power. Now there is. In a lot of churches, it's, it's, it's a huge problem. But, but this is what Jesus is, is, is speaking against here. And ultimately, if, if you're not serving others, then you're not serving Christ. If you're not serving others, you're not serving Christ The last um, point that he points out here is love. The motive of Christian leadership is love, not reputation. I read John 13 for our scripture reading this morning, the first part of that chapter, about Jesus washing the disciples' feet. In that first verse of John 13, we read that now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. You see, love for their followers is the reason that servant leaders serve. Love, is, love has to be the motivation I want to read this rather lengthy quote from his book because I think it's I think it's really good. He says probably Jesus washed his disciples' feet one or two days after Jesus' instruction in Matthew 20. 
24 through 28. In Luke 22, 24 through 30, Luke tells us that earlier that evening, the disciples had been quarreling again over who was the greatest. It is at this point in the Gospel of John that Jesus shifts from a public ministry to one focused on his own disciples, those who would be the foundation of the future first century church. Jesus is about to die and leave this earth. His disciples must be ready to lead the young church. In John 13, Jesus begins his farewell address. Last words are always lasting words. Jesus notices that the disciples, who were likely reclining around a table, had dirty feet. Customarily, a slave or servant would wash the guest's feet when they entered a home. Some would say this was the responsibility of the lowest slave in the household. Perhaps this is the reason Peter at first refuses to let Jesus wash his feet. Regardless, no slave was present to serve the disciples that evening. And none of them was willing to assume that role for the others. To have done so in their minds would have settled their argument about who was the greatest by identifying who wasn't the greatest. For them, this would have been an act of leadership elimination. So there they all proudly reclined around the table with dirty feet. And I suspect that it was most obvious. So the Savior assumed the servant's role and washed their feet for them, setting the example, as well as illustrating what he had taught them earlier in Matthew 20. Jesus passionately loved these men, and it was that love that enabled him to take up the towel rather than toss in the towel. Here's the point. We'll serve others humbly only to the degree that we love them. That's powerful. When you, when you understand that, that Jesus washing their feet and becoming, taking on the role of a servant, doing what none of them were willing to do, took place just a couple of days after this teaching that had to be fresh on their minds. You see, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the only place that that type of service can come from is out of a heart of love. It's, it's the outgrowth of love for a hurt, uh, love from the heart. Love for one's neighbor is, is made tangible in, in, in service to others. Self-love and the desire for personal rule and dominance suffocates Genuine love so that a person cannot focus on others. And of course, we could meditate on Philippians 2, 5 through 11. You're familiar with the passage. Jesus humbled himself. He, he totally set aside all of his rights and prerogatives as the God of glory. And he did so in order to die on the cross for our sins. And it's only through receiving him that one can have the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And this is what it takes to, for a follower of Christ to become a great servant. What our Lord requires of us each day is that we abandon our self-focused outlook 
on life and ministry. And that, that entails every area of life. It entails our, our homes, our families. It entails our, our workplace. Not, not only with the, those that we fellowship with in the local church, but Jesus demands that, that we lay aside any advantaged position we have and that we humbly become a slave to all. That we live out our lives in service to others. And that's what our church and any church needs to to grow spiritually and to advance the kingdom of Christ in the place where he has called us. What we need is we need sold-out, self-sacrificing servants. As we serve others, ultimately, whom do we serve? God, right? The Lord. Christ himself. And in serving people, we'll we'll often struggle. We'll become frustrated, even discouraged by their responses to to our attempted servant leadership. We'll encounter many people who are ungrateful, resistant, and even antagonistic to us as we try to serve them. But ultimately, we must remember we serve the Lord Christ. Christ. Everything we do is for his sake. And that's, what's keep us, that's what keeps us going. I mean, you read the Gospels, right? And, and you read about Jesus. And, and obviously he served far more than any of us could ever possibly even imagine serving. As far as how he treated people, as far as his healing, as far as his teaching was concerned. And, and, and yet, you come to the cross and he's hanging on the cross he's being crucified how many were following him then the ultimate servant of all how many were following him then how many had turned away how many had forsaken him almost everyone just a handful there but he never stopped serving He never stopped humbly thinking of others. He loved them until the end. May God give all of us servants' hearts. And and may God raise up self-sacrificing servants in this church to, to serve as elders and deacons. Because that's the only kind of leadership we need and it's the only kind of leadership that the Lord desires for us thank you Lord for this difficult lesson that you gave the disciples that is meant for us as well Lord those of us who have any leadership role in the church help us to be servant leaders Those who desire to have any leadership role in the church, help them to learn to be servants and to stop serving themselves, but to rather serve you, the Lord, by serving others. In Jesus' name, amen.